like to read these words from the psalmist. Psalm 33, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre, a little stringed instrument. Uh, sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord, or the what of the Lord? Yeah, loving kindness. Now, what has our pastor been saying? Did he? Grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that your loving kindness, your, your grace, your mercy radiates from your throne to us down below who are in such great need of it. We know, Lord, that even the best of us is weak and failing. We know, as the scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one, in and of himself or herself. The righteousness that we possess is the righteousness that has been imputed to us by God himself through Jesus Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, for your spirit whom you have sent to dwell in our midst. We know he is here right now. He is here to empower the word. He's here to touch our hearts. He's here to convict, to encourage, to challenge whatever each of us needs this day. We thank you for your holiness and righteousness. And we thank you, Lord, that one day you will set it all straight. And that one day the righteousness of God will flow across the surface of the earth and every life will be touched. We're thankful, Lord, that the scripture tells us that, you're not willing, that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And therefore, that is our prayer, because in, in the lives of each of us, we have those for whom we are deeply concerned. Father, we thank you for answered prayer. We thank you for this day that you have granted to us and the opportunity, the freedom yet in this land to study your word openly. And we just pray that as, as it is proclaimed by our pastor in the services uh, yet this morning and throughout this Sunday school, throughout the city of Reading and around the world, that you will be glorified and your kingdom expanded. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at what I've entitled Israel through the millennia. And when I speak of Israel, I mean both the land and the people. So far, we've been able to trace this, this history from the call of God upon Abraham, which occurred over 2,000 years before Christ, all the way down until the beginning of the Babylonian captivity of the nation of Judah, which occurred, or began at least, in 606 B.C. And in so doing, we have kind of really, really just touched on a few highlights of the Old Testament history Today, we're going to read from a few passages from the latter portion of the Old Testament. Latter meaning latter in both the physical sense of being at the end of it, plus latter in terms of time, the chronology. And a couple of short passages from the New Testament to see how this connection can be made. But the bulk of our focus today is going to be on the 400 years in between the two Testaments. Now, you are going to just get a minute highlight. Dr. Walmart teaches an entire course of a semester on the intertestamental history and literature. So if you really want to have it in depth, go to his class. 
Now the record for this 400 or so year period is, as we have been implying here, extra biblical. That is, it's, the record is primarily outside the Bible. Uh, the record of this period is found primarily in, in some archaeological evidence. It's found in writings such as uh, the writings of Josephus and the apocryphal books and so forth. But what I think is important for us to remember and to always keep in mind is that even when the eternal word of God is not being spoken or written by his people, the Israelites, at a particular moment in time, God is still active. God is still at work. God is not only active when his word is being produced, but he's active at all places at all times. The era, as we have looked at, now I, I passed out to you last time the second sheet, which gives the uh, Israelite eras of the first millennium BC, uh, the temple periods, and the Persian emperors that we'll allude to. The period or the era from 516 BC uh, down to AD 70 is, re is usually referred to as the second temple period. The second temple period. The first temple is the Temple of Solomon. The temple which David wanted to build, but God said, no, David, you're not going to build this temple because you have bloody hands. You have been used by me to, to build this empire, the Davidic empire. I'm going to use a man of peace, uh, a man by the name of Solomon. And if anybody ever gets the idea somehow that God only uses perfect people, of which there are none, of course, and never have been except Jesus Christ himself, uh, all you have to do is look at David and his imperfections and Solomon called the man of peace who built the temple because he was, you know, better prepared to build the temple and yet we know what happened to Solomon, you know. I mean, it's not exactly perfect to have 700 wives and 300 concubines and <laughs> a few other misdeeds along the way. But, but what it helps us to see is that in this life, until we cross Chile, Jordan, so is it, and we're never going to achieve perfection. There never has been a person who has been perfect in this life. No matter what anybody tries to tell you in the myths and the legends that have come down through time about various individuals. Because we are in the flesh, in, in the flesh we, we are imperfect and we always will be. And our souls are imperfect until they have passed into God's presence and our salvation is completed. From 960 B.C. until 586 B.C., this Temple of Solomon stood. But as I pointed out to you last time, the Babylonians who established this empire that we looked at briefly last time inside the, these red lines right here, this is the Babylonian Empire, basically this area right here, because this is mostly empty land here. This is northern Arabia and the Syrian desert, and very few people live out in, in what's relatively hostile territory. So the bulk of the people live in the uh, so-called Fertile Crescent along here. The Babylonian impact upon Judah began in 606 B.C., which I mentioned to you before. Nebuchadnezzar returned in force in 596 and again in 586 because the Jews kept rebelling and being disobedient. And, and so he came back and each time he, he racked up the, uh, the, the pressure until he destroyed the temple of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So the Temple of Solomon was gone. And if you go there today to the Temple Mount, and you, you look at what you, you see there, and of course what you'll see there is mostly from Herodian times, the Herodian retaining wall, which has been called the Wailing Wall, is now called the Western Wall. That's just to hold the Temple Mount up, 
to create uh, rather vertical walls to the flat platform which stands on top. Uh, you will find no evidence of the, of the Temple of Solomon. Oh, they'll say, well, if you come over here and look down this hole or something. No, the Temple of Solomon's gone. Uh, it's, it's totally gone. What you'll see there are, uh, you know, and, and even the Herodian Temple is, for all practical purposes, gone as well. The, the Romans were pretty good at uh, eliminating whatever they wanted to eliminate, and so were the Babylonians. So that temple came to an end in 586. From 586 to 616, there was no completed temple. Now, there was no temple at all until 536 when the Jews began, or actually a few years later than that, they began the process of trying to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. But that wasn't completed until 516. So from 516 on down to AD 70, there was a temple again in Jerusalem, and that is called the Second Temple. It's called the Second Temple. And we find no record in Scripture or anywhere else that definitively tells us that Zerubbabel's temple was destroyed and then Herod's temple was built. So what we glean from this is that Herod's temple was a renovation and expansion of Zerubbabel's temple. And so there was no leveling of the site and building the new Herodian temple, but a modification of the old and replacement with the new. So the whole period is called the Second Temple Period. If you looked at it otherwise, you might say, well, there's the Temple of Solomon, the Temple of Zerubbabel, the Temple of Herod, therefore three temples. But they do, the Jews do not look at it that way. They see it as two temples. And therefore, the third temple that seems to be prophesied in Ezekiel and elsewhere would be the Temple of the End Times. The return of the Jews from the exile in Babylon, tens of thousands, and we looked at that last time and the time before, the 50,000 or so that came back under Zerubbabel, a few hundred more that came back under Ezra and Nehemiah. This marks the end of the Babylonian captivity, or, or the, the, the return under Zerubbabel marks the end of the, of the exile, as it was called. Because the Babylonian Empire, this, this great empire which you see here, was overrun by the Persians called the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians were the top dog. They, they were the ones who ran the empire. The Babylonians, while they were in power and while they ruled Judah, believed in pacifying the people under their control similarly to the way the Assyrians did. And that is dispersing the leadership of, of a conquered country elsewhere and replacing it. This is exactly what the Incas did, if you've ever studied the Inca history. The Incas also took the leadership from a conquered tribe and, and took it to an area safely within their territory and reprogrammed the leaders so that they thought like Incas thought. That's why it's almost, it's very difficult to discover the, the pre-Inca history of the Andean area because the Incas basically obliterated it and reprogrammed all the thinkers to think Incan. And so it was with the Babylonians. And so Jews were carried off into captivity, mostly the leadership, upper class were carried off. And this caused the Jews a great deal of distress. And if you have read Psalm 137, you need to know that it is set in this context. It's a beautiful scripture, it's a poem which describes what it was like for the Jews to be away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from their land, and, and often this pagan foreign land. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. In other words, thinking back to Jerusalem and we think back to the temple and here we are in this place, oh Lord. Upon the willows 
in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it. In other words, the Edomites were saying to the Babylonians, hey, do it, do it. Hey, we're with you, you know to its very foundation. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against a rock. Now that's pretty gory. But one of the things you find about Scripture is it cuts to the chase. Scripture deals with reality. It's not pie in the sky, some kind of flowery thing over here. It deals with the way things really were. That's why it points out the foibles and the evils and the failures of so many of the men and women of God. And so here they were in this sad place. And, 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 and the song says, we'll be glad when you receive what you have given to us. And that's what the Persians will do. The Persians will come in and they will capture the city of Babylon and they will destroy it, and you read about it in, in the book of Daniel. We all know the story of Belshazzar having this great feast. And, ah, we, uh, the feast isn't going well enough. We need to bring the utensils from the temple in Jerusalem so that when we drink our wine, we're drink, drinking it from vessels that have been dedicated to a god. And that's when the hand bodiless hand came and wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tikalu, Farsen, you've been weighted in the balances and found wanting, you're a dead man. And you remember the story that Belshazzar, as he sees this handwriting in his hand, you know, a bodiless hand. I don't think it was just itty-bitty. That was a big hand. I mean, the walls of Babylon, I mean, the, of, the, of the palace, were probably stone. You know, stone flying everywhere as this hand writes in her, and it says his knees were knocking together. Bow, 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 you know, it's no wonder. And, and Daniel comes in, and it's that very night that Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians, that very night. And historians say what the, they did was that they had been working on this ahead of time, building a channel, which apparently the Babylonians hadn't been paying attention to, so they could divert the river, which flowed right through the city. And then he diverted the river, then just walked on the riverbed right into the city, right under the walls, and conquered the city. The Persians, fortunately, were more tolerant than the Babylonians. And one of the reasons that the Persians were more tolerant can be seen by looking at this map. The Persian Empire became everything in green. The Persians would conquer a territory which would stretch from the Aegean over here in the west to the Indus River over here in the east. Largest empire in history of the world to that moment. But the Persians were outnumbered by the people they ruled 60 to 1. Obviously, with those kinds of odds, you're more tolerant. <laughs> because you don't want a major group of people somewhere rising up against you. But they believed in self-determination for the peoples that they had conquered. They believed that peoples that were ruled by them should have a measure of, of their own culture, their own religion. The Persians were Zoroastrians. Uh, Zoroastrianism is more inclusive and less exclusive than some religions. And they didn't try to shove that religion down the throats 
of the peoples they conquered. But certainly God had much to do with this. We can't just look at the nature of a people and think, oh, well, you know, it's just the fate of history or some such thing. But let me read to you from the first chapter of the book of Ezra, where we read these words. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so they sent a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Notice he is speaking in the first person about God appointing him to do this. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with, gold, with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. This is a pagan king, Cyrus, the founding emperor of the Persian Empire. Kind of a early day Genghis Khan in some ways. And this is his word, his proclamation. And Dr. Walmart pointed out last time and reminded me of the, the passage in Isaiah, which I'll, I'll turn to, which is really kind of amazing when, when you look at it. It's the end of uh, chapter 44, beginning of verse chapter 45, where we read these words. It is I who says of Cyrus, this is God saying, of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. I will he will, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his Messiah, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue the nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so gates will not be shut. The Lord calls him Mashiach, the anointed one. Obviously in a different context and, and a different meaning than speaking of, of Christ when he would come. But it's interesting that he was God's tool. And Cyrus is mentioned in four Old Testament books. And he is referred to as a pagan king who didn't know God personally, but was doing the will of God. Pretty amazing when you think about that. So we understand that God is moving the course of history according to his plan. The providence of God is always at work. We may not see it. We may not be able to say, it's like teaching, let's say, uh, history of modern Europe, which I teach. I can't say, aha, you can see at this very moment where God did this. You, know, you can't. But, but you know that God is providentially behind these things that are transpiring. God doesn't, you know, doesn't order down to the very littlest moment every, everything that happens, but he gives the general course. He's sovereign over it all. He gives us freedom as people. We, are, we have free wills. We can do as we choose. We can rebel. We can obey. It's up to us to make the choice. But God, nevertheless, has providence over it all. The Jews were given a tough time in the land when they returned by Cyrus's authorization. 
by the people who had been left behind in the land, or actually people who had migrated into the land to fill the gap. And the people who had filled the gap further north in, in, in the Israel portion, or the Ephraim portion, and who would later be known as the Samaritans. Uh, they were given a tough time by these people as they returned, but they had a powerful support behind them because they had the support of Cyrus, of his grandson Darius, and of Darius's grandson Artaxerxes. And so three of the great kings were supportive of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and hence the city of Jerusalem. They had authorization from on high, so to speak. The Jewish nation functioned as a part of a province of the Persian Empire. And as I mentioned to you last time, the scripture refers to the province over here as beyond the river this being the river, Euphrates River. So west of the river, Judea and what had been Israel were part of that particular province. From 538 BC until the collapse of the Persian Empire in 330 BC. The relationship between Israel or Judah and the government was feudalistic in the sense that as long as the Jews paid their taxes, didn't disobey the government, they could keep their culture, they could keep their religion, they could have their own governor, uh, they, they could just get along, okay, fine, just be sure you pay taxes and, and, and don't rebel. And the Persians weren't heavy-handed uh, on them in that sense. So they kept their theocracy, which is what they had gone back to, in effect, uh, un, you know, under the umbrella of the Persian uh, government, of course. And at least beginning with Nehemiah, they pretty much had Jewish governors over them in that period of time. There is no biblical record, there is no historical archaeological evidence that under the Persians, Judah was ever anything more than a poor second-class region within the Persian Empire. It was not a shining star, it wasn't the great financial center, the industrial motor, or any, any other such thing. It was just out on the fringes of the um, Persian Empire. On the surface, things changed dramatically and quickly in 332 BC. Because at that time, the land was overrun by the armies of the Macedonians and the Greeks led by one named Alexander the Great. And what is fascinating is the scripture gives us insight into that in the eighth chapter of Daniel. One of the things that's really a blessing to me is being able to teach at a college where I can give the whole truth and I don't have to circumvent the truth or, or avoid parts of the truth because I'm in a secular institution and it sounds religious. It's like, you know, you can't have the Ten Commandments in some law court uh, because it's, a, it's instituting establishment of religion or some such thing, which of course is ridiculous. But nevertheless, 8th chapter of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, the king of vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, Susa was one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire had a capital at Persepolis, a second one at Ecbatana, third one at Susa, and the fourth one at Babylon. And Susa was generally the capital during the summertime, because I mentioned to you before, it's, it's up, it's, it's higher in elevation in the Zagros Mountains 
Babylon's right down the hot valley, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. And I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in his place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of the heaven. Now you read that and you say, whoa, you know, this is interesting imagery. What in the world is it talking about? But um, he goes on to define what he's talking about in the 20 and 21st verses. The ram, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of Media Persia, the Persian Empire. The one larger horn was the Persian horn, which came up later. The Persians, as I mentioned to you before, were cousins of the Medes. The Medes had a big empire here, or a, you know, call it empire, kingdom. And, and Persia was down in one corner of it. But the Persians, under Cyrus, overthrew their cousins and masters and became the senior partner in the coalition. And so it becomes known as the Persian Empire. And then in the 21st verse we read, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between its eyes, the first king. The first king in the sense of what Alexander came to do. So it's Alexander the Great is what is, is, the, what is being referred to here. So Alexander began his conquest of the Persian Empire. Now Alexander's father had just conquered the kingdom of Greece in the previous years. Philip of Macedon really thought highly of the Greeks and thought it would be best if he ruled them since they're always yeah, at odds. The Greeks have rarely been denied, uh, or I should say, were rarely united in ancient times. Rarely. They always were very independent-minded and always fighting amongst themselves. And so he decided to unify them under his rule. And then he was assassinated about two years after he completed that task, and his 19-year-old son came to power by the name of Alexander. And Alexander decided to pick up his father's dream, and his father's dream was to deal with Persia. Because Macedon, which is right up, uh, where are we at here? Macedon is right up here, uh, sitting on top of Greece. And whenever the Persians came to attack Greece, they marched through Macedonia. So the Macedonians got tired of the Persians marching through their territory. And so he decided to have vengeance on the Persians. I don't think Philip had a dream of conquering the world like Alexander had. But Alexander picked up his father's mantle and ran with it. Alexander idolized Achilles. And he carried a copy of the Iliad with him wherever he went. He thought he was reincarnated Achilles. That's why Alexander was always out in the front. Whenever there was an attack, he was lead man. He wasn't a general stood on the hill way back behind and said, all right, you guys go down over there. He was out in front. And so they said when he died, which he did at 33 years of age, that there was hardly an inch on his body that didn't have a wound of some sort. 
because he was constantly in battle. And of course, when you think about this, how could a man of that nature always be in the front of battle, receive all these wounds, and not receive a lethal wound? He did not die from any of his wounds. He died from overindulgence. How can that be if there is not, if this is not a spiritual war? You know? And God had a plan for Alexander to do what Alexander did. And, and certainly the forces of evil were involved here too. And so somehow he was preserved until he basically destroyed himself. Burned out like a meteor. And so Alexander launched this attack against the Persian. I mean, it's ridiculous to think of a man with 35,000 troops is going to conquer, I mean, from over here, is going to conquer this, this whole, his goal was to conquer the world. Of course, he didn't have any idea how big the world was, but, but he knew that there was this big Persian empire. And when he did get over here to the Indus River, the legend is that when his troops said, hey, Alex, we're going home. We've gone long enough. It's been 10 years. We want to go home. And he sat down and cried because he couldn't go on conquering the world. Well, he knew that over here in the uh, Ganges Valley that there were many great Indian kingdoms over there. And, you know, he, he might have been able to conquer those. We don't know. The Indians have often been at odds with each other, too. But sometimes they got themselves together when an enemy attacked. And so this vast empire that had been established by the Persians would be overthrown by this young man named Alexander. And this particular map traces the route of his conquest, beginning over here in Pella, which is the capital of Macedonia, crossing the Hellespont, moving through Asia Minor here. He came down here to Tyre, and it's a, a very fascinating story, connected with passages, prophecies, particularly a prophecy in the 26th chapter of Ezekiel, which has to do with the city of Tyre and, and how it would be destroyed. And, and then he moved down here to a, to a city called Gaza. Some of us have heard of Gaza. <laughs> and, and he captured a Persian fortress there at Gaza. Now, the, the historical record, the, the secular historical record, goes on to say that then he marched down into Egypt. But Josephus tells us that Alexander at that point was invited to go up to Jerusalem. And so he went from Gaza up to Jerusalem, and supposedly the high priest led him in worship and sacrifice to the God of heaven in the temple, or at the temple. Now, Josephus is the only source for that. And so many consider that to be legend and, and probably never really happened. Well, we, we don't know. Uh, Josephus used to be laughed at as a historian you couldn't trust. But as the years have rolled by and the decades have rolled by, Josephus' standing as a historian has steadily risen because more and more extra sources from the outside have validated many of the things that Josephus has said. He lived in the first century. just after. Well, he lived during the time of Christ and afterwards. So, did, did Alexander do this? Well, we don't really know. But we do know that he allowed the Jewish theocracy to continue to function. He didn't interfere with it. He was too busy trying to conquer an empire anyway. But one of the things which he did do, which would profoundly influence the Jews, was when he came to Egypt and the Egyptians wisely crowned him Pharaoh, and he went out here to an oasis in the desert where there were monks of the uh, Egyptian variety who were, of course, worshiping Isis and, and Ra, Amun-Ra, and all of those kinds of things, pagan monks. 
they told him that he was the son of God, which confirmed uh, what he already thought. You know, he was pretty sure that was true, but... Maybe not the son part. <laughs> yes, right. And, and often after that, they portray him on coins and so forth with, with divine attributes. But anyway, he went and established a city here called, he was very modest, Alexandria. One of about 70 he would establish. And this would become a very, very important thing for the Jews. Uh, the establishment of the city of Alexandria, because it would become one of the great intellectual centers of the ancient world. Even in the uh, period of the early church, Alexandria would be one of the centers of the, uh, would be one of the patriarchies uh, of the ancient world, which was in rivalry with Antioch up in the north. And there would eventually be a split, and, and that's why the Coptic Christians view things differently from many of the other Orthodox Christians relative to who Christ was in uh, particular. But uh, this great intellectual center that was established, the Jews were given equal rights with the Greeks. They weren't treated as second-class citizens. And so it became a magnet for Jews of the diaspora in particular. Many of the Jews had already been carried off or had already fled down to Egypt. Remember we talked about that when Jeremiah was a prophet. He and others, he was forcibly taken down to Egypt where he said they shouldn't go. So many Jews had already fled to Egypt, but later others of the diaspora were drawn to, to Alexandria because of, of its intellectual center. It had one of the largest libraries in the ancient world. Um, you had freedom there to, to practice your religion and your intellectual pursuits. Eventually, the Jews would comprise one-fifth of the population of that city. It would be, and we will talk about this more later, not today, but it would be because of this that Alexandria would be the site of the first great translation of the Hebrew Scripture into another language being specifically Greek. And our Dr. Walmart could tell us uh, a great deal uh, about that. Alexander swept like a mighty tornado through the Persian Empire conquering all the way, as you see there, to what is today modern Pakistan. In 10 years, he created the largest empire ever to that moment in time, even greater than the Persian Empire by the fact that he added these areas over here that the Persians never successfully were able to conquer. So from the Adriatic, which is the sea that separates Greece from Italy over here, all the way to the Indus River, this vast empire, was conquered by one man with 35,000 troops. However, shortly after the death of Alexander in 323 B.C., his empire was divided as was prophesied in Daniel chapter 8, where it said that the conspicuous horn would be broken off and in its place four smaller horns would rise towards the four winds of the heaven. It would be those four that would be of momentary importance, two of them of long-term importance. One of his generals, a man by the name of Seleucus, would take control of the largest part of Alexander's empire, from eastern Asia Minor all the way over to the Indus River. Seleucus would rule it, and he would establish the Seleucid monarchy, or kingdom. Another one of his generals, a man by the name of Ptolemy, would establish the portion of his, he would take over the, the Egyptian portion, including the island of Cyprus, and, and depending on the time period, part of the Levant, if not all of the Levant, would be controlled by the Persians, 
And then two other military men would, for a short period of time, take over Western Asia Minor and the Greece Macedonian area, and eventually it would collapse into what you see here. We have the kingdom of Pergamum, which would be an independent uh, kingdom would be established. Sparta would sort of be a center of a, of a league of Peloponnesian states. Athens would be the center of a kind of an early resurrection of, of Greece. The Antigonids would rule up there. For a while, the Antigonids would rule all of this. But eventually, it would collapse into this particular situation. But that didn't matter to Israel. What matters to Israel are these two kingdoms, Seleucid Kingdom and the Ptolemaic Kingdom. We have no biblical record of this except for some enigmatic passages in the book of Daniel, particularly the 11th chapter. I have studied that 11th chapter and, and looked at the historical record and, and those who have studied this in, in, with greater intensity than I, and they try to piece together the historical record with what Daniel says there, and it seems to fit pretty well about the interchange between those two Greek kingdoms. So the land of promise, the land that God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be yours in perpetuity, was now under the control of the Ptolemaic Empire of Egypt, ruled from the city of Alexandria. And later, the Seleucids would conquer or defeat the Ptolemies and capture the land, and so the land would be ruled from Antioch. So you have Alexandria over here, and then Antioch, which for some reason they don't have it on here, but is right up in here. My wife and I, about five years ago, had the opportunity to visit Antioch, of the modern city today, and to stand on the banks of the Orontes River, near where Paul and Barnabas would be called uh, to become the early missionaries of the church. But the city is not what it was. It was a great intellectual architectural wonder in under the days of the Seleucids. It'd be one of the grand cities of the Roman Empire, uh, but today, of course, it's, it's much slipped from its days of grandeur and looks much more typically like a modern Arab city, you know. It's actually in Turkey today. So it's, it's not the same, but it was, it was a great uh, center. Well, I think what we'll do is uh, stop here. Any questions before we take prayer? Yeah, Dennis. Uh, well, I lost track. The uh, Alexander, when he ruled, did he rule as the uh, Persians did, and kind of let people as they are and just collect taxes, or what was his approach? <clears throat> Alexander had studied under Aristotle, and Aristotle had said to him, treat the barbarians as slaves, but he didn't. He didn't. He actually respected many of them. In fact, when the Persian emperor was slain by one of the emperor's own men, Alexander was ticked because uh, he wanted either to personally do it or capture him, or he didn't want somebody else doing it. And so he was really upset with that. But actually, he married several Persian princesses along the way and had a bunch of his men, like 10,000 of them, in a mass marriage, a la Sun Moon, you know, <laughs> married a whole slug of his men to a bunch of Persian princesses at one point in time. So he actually respected them to the degree that he felt like if he took enough Greeks along and put a little group of Greeks here, a little group of Greeks there, some Greeks over here, that all of these barbarians would see the wisdom and the brilliance of the Greek way of life and they would all become Greeks in their minds and in their culture. So he tried to Hellenize uh, this part of the world and, and there was a measure of success to that. And of course to us what's important is the Hellenization which took place in Israel. 
And that's why in the New Testament we talk about the Hellenes and, and so forth as you read through the uh, New Testament record and the influence of the, of the Greeks, particularly on the Sadducees and, and some of the others. <clears throat> so Alexander's attitude was not that of Aristotle about how he dealt. And, and plus the fact that he was a moving army and he left a very skeleton crew behind. And so he didn't have real authority over this empire. He died in Babylon of an overdose of uh, alcohol and some kind of a fever he'd picked up along the way. And any, any other? I know we just were moving at lightning speed here. And what I'm trying to do is, is get us to, to see what happened in Israel and to Israel within the biblical record as much as we possibly can be but also bringing in the, the historical record that's outside the Bible uh, to a measure as well. <clears throat>